Well, humanity has always been obsessed with power. Just watch every action movie that's ever been made. You'll see it. Every Marvel comic book. Just watch the news. It's everywhere. Our obsession with power. And we've always been confused about power, confused about what power is, about where power resides. One leader nearing his death said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there's no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. On what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and that at this hour, millions of men and women would die for him. Napoleon Bonaparte. But he was overwhelmed with this idea okay, who is this Jesus Christ who I founded empires with my power, with force, with, and nobody will die for me? They do what I tell them because I'll kill them if they don't. Yet here's this one, Jesus Christ, who founds his empire upon love, on the sacrifice of his life, and millions would die for him. In the garden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve by offering them power. You can be like God if you just eat the fruit. In the wilderness, Satan tempted Christ by offering him power, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory I will give to you if you would only worship me. The devil loves to tempt with power. He knows we thirst for it, whether a little or a lot, whether over a small little dominion or much. We obsess about who's in power. We obsess about what they're doing. And one of the themes of the book of Daniel is power. Nations rise in power and conquer. Then they give way to new nations that rise in power and conquer. Kings rise up and receive power. Then they surrender their power to another. And the people of God, humanly speaking, look powerless throughout the story. We're meant to see that. They're exiles. They're slaves to alien kingdoms. They're at the mercy of foreign kings, so it would seem. They're caught in the middle of this endless, seemingly, power struggle. And so what do God's people really need to know under those conditions? What do God's people really need to see and believe when everything looks bleak? When we might be tempted to think, okay, we need more Christians in power. That's what would fix this thing. More of my people in power. And so when we really think about this day, when we think about the future, even life after death, what do we need to know about power? That's why Daniel 8 is here. Psalm 62, 11, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. All other power is borrowed power. And David wrote that when he and Israel were at the height of power. And yet it's every bit as true when God's people are at the bottom. That's why Daniel 8 is here, to help us look across the constant changes of power in the world and remember that all power belongs to God all the time. And He gives it to whom He pleases, when He pleases, 
to serve his purposes until the day when he places all things under the power of his Son. That's the main point. All power belongs to God the Father at all times. And he gives it to whom he pleases, when he pleases, to serve his purposes until the day when he places all things under the power of his Son. Daniel 8, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first, I mean the one that came to him two years ago, chapter 7. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one that could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. This chapter alone, there's almost 20 direct references to power or to greatness or to strength. And here's one of them, this ram, that during the third year of the reign of the last king of Babylon, Daniel is going to see ahead to a kingdom that God has ordained to replace Babylon. You can imagine he's there in Babylon and he's being caught up in a vision to the capital of the next kingdom that's going to rule the world. And he sees what the Lord will do with that kingdom. Susa is the capital of Persia, which is modern-day Iran. If you know the book of Esther, the book of Esther is set in Susa, the capital of Persia. And in this vision, he's going to see the ram conquering the world, which in verse 20, um, the angel Gabriel explains to Daniel that the ram refers to the kings of of Medo-Persia. And the two horns signify those two kingdoms, the kingdom of the Medes, the kingdom of the Persians, with the Persian kingdom coming up last and being the strongest of the two. And these nations come from the east in order to conquer to the west and to the north and to the south, and no one could stand before them because they were given the power to conquer and rule. Verse 4, no one could rescue from his power. Verse 5, and as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, meaning fast. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So as Daniel is reflecting on this ram, this other animal, enters the vision. A male goat comes from the west, which the angel Gabriel interprets in verse 21 to be uh, the Greece. And this great horn that's going to come up, we know from history, is going to be Alexander the Great. This first great horn of the kingdom of Greece that's going to come from the west and run at the kingdom of Medo-Persia with powerful wrath. 
It says the ram had no power to stand before him. In verse 7, there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So just when you think, wow, this, this ram has got it going on, he is big time. He is awesome. You read the history books on Persia, you go, what an empire. Then here, just when you think he's to stay, he gets cast to the ground and trampled. Well, now the goat's big time. And this horn, Alexander the Great, is big time. In fact, history tells us that Alexander the Great was tutored as a teenager by Aristotle. And so by education standards, that's, that's pretty good. Alexander ascended to the throne at the age of 20. And in the couple years to follow, he's going to embark on sort of a worldwide campaign to take over the world, and he's going to conquer the world in 10 years. 10 years to conquer from India to North Africa. Never once is he defeated in battle. And to this day, you go to any military academy, and at some point they're going to teach you tactics that come from Alexander the Great. Some have never improved on him. And just when the horn becomes exceedingly great and strong, he gets, verse 8, broken. That is, he dies. Somewhere around the age of 32 or 33, Alexander is actually going to die in the city of Babylon in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to drink a big bowl of wine in honor of Hercules. And then immediately be something, some pain take over his stomach and him lay sick and die 11 days later after a miserable 11 days. Some think he may have been poisoned. Others think he contracted a disease. Some wonder, was he struck by God? All we know is one day he ruled the world, and then he was dead. That fast. Because all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 40. Some blades of grass get bigger and stronger than others. Some get taller and greener than others. And so at the height of Alexander the Great's strength, we go, wow, that's a big blade of grass. That's a green blade of grass. But then the Lord just blows on him, and he withers away. That's power. That's the power we're meant to see. And the Lord divided Alexander's kingdom among four of his generals, each becoming a dynasty of their own to the north and to the south and east and west. Verse 8, toward the four winds of heaven. That's what it means, is to the four directions on the globe. In verse 9, out of one of them, meaning out of one of those dynasties, came a little horn, meaning a specific king, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, that's Egypt, toward the east, that's Persia, toward the glorious land, that's the promised land, Israel. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, which I think is a reference to the people of Israel. And some of the host, people of Israel, and some of the stars, a reference to angels, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts, a reference to the Son of God, the Lord. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, meaning the Son of God, and the place of his sanctuary, the temple in Jerusalem, was overthrown. And a host, 
as a portion of the people of Israel will be given over to it, namely killed, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, that is the sins of the people of Israel. And it will throw truth to the ground. It will throw right worship of Yahweh in the temple to the ground and replace it with false worship. And it, the horn, will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. It's an angel. And another holy one, another angel, said to one of the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. As you can see, events in verse 9 start to get interesting. And in order to understand, I think, these words well and the verses well, we need to understand how biblical prophecy works. And there's usually a near fulfillment to the imagery, and we'll see that in a moment. But there's often a far fulfillment to that imagery as well. A near fulfillment in the coming days or centuries. But then a far fulfillment in the days of Christ and beyond to the very last days when he comes between his first and his second coming. Sometimes Scripture views the near and the far fulfillments all at once using one image, one story, one figure, and that's what's happening here. From the four kingdoms that arose in the Greek empire, one king, verse 9, grew exceedingly great toward the south and east, especially toward Israel, toward the glorious land. In other words, a wicked king from one of those four dynasties is going to arise. We know that dynasty to be the Seleucid Empire. And Antiochus Epiphanes is going to rise up And he's going to conquer to the south toward Egypt and toward the east, toward Persia, and even into the promised land. And the prince of the host in verse 11, I believe, refers to God himself because it says that his sanctuary will be taken down. Daniel 11, verse 36 says this, And the king shall do as he wills. This is a reference to this little horn. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. So the God of gods we see there in chapter 11 is the same as this prince of hosts that we see here in chapter 8 verse 11. That whoever this little horn, this dictator will be that will rise up from one of these dynasties. He will go after the temple of God and the people of God and speak in such a way and conduct himself in such a way that is even up against God himself. And we see the power behind the little horn is demonic. We'll see this much more in chapter 11, that we're meant to get a glimpse of the cosmic struggle that is behind these little battles. The more the chapters progress in Daniel, the more sort of the curtain of heaven is pulled back, where we begin to see that demons are aligned with these various world powers seeking to destroy God's people and sort of exalt themselves against the Lord's Christ. And then on the other side, we see angels aligned with God's people, seeking to strengthen God's people and help them exalt and boast in the Lord's Christ. And so that's not meant to alarm us. It's just meant to humble us. And we see that's going to be the effect it's going to have on Daniel. 
going to move him to pray. Because we don't wage war against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says that's always been the case, that our battle is not against just flesh and blood. It's against rulers and principalities, demonic forces in heavenly places. And in Daniel 8, we see that curtain start to get pulled back. We see a spiritual war being played out on this world stage. And based on descriptions we'll get in more detail in Daniel 11, but also several books of history, we know that this little horn is Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the actual king that's going to come. He's going to be the near fulfillment of these words. He's going to rule from the Seleucid dynasty and come to power in 175 B.C. and he'll reign for 11 years. And there'll be a revolt against him in Jerusalem. And after that revolt, Antiochus is going to return and slaughter many of the Jews. And then he's going to outlaw the worship of Yahweh in the temple. And he's going to make it only the law that you must worship Zeus there. He's going to set up a shrine to Zeus in the temple. Then he's going to bring a pig into the temple and sacrifice it on the altar. That's what verse 13 means when it says the transgression that makes desolate. That he's going to defile the sanctuary and blaspheme God. Even with his name, he named himself Epiphanes, which means God manifest. Antiochus, God manifest. That's the near fulfillment of this passage. But at the same time, there's going to be a far fulfillment in the days of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that these Words, Daniel 8 are going to look to the near circumstances of Antiochus Epiphanes, but then also to another day when the prince of the host, Jesus Christ, will visit his people in the place of his sanctuary. And because of the transgression of the people, he will be thrown down to the ground and trampled. Where God will give a degree of authority, if you will, to Satan, to enter Judas Iscariot, to tempt him to betray the Lord, to stir the Roman Empire and the Jewish leaders to take the Son of God and to crucify him. And it will look for a moment as if he is defeated. It will look, okay, even this one will rise up over the prince of the host, the God of gods, and put him to death. Listen to this in John 19, when Jesus stood silently before Pilate, And Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Even Jesus recognizes whatever authority you have, Pilate, to put me to death has been given to you. And so we see these themes of Daniel 8 being replayed. And then they're going to replay again in the very last days. Jesus is going to speak of this in Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So here Jesus is interpreting the words of Daniel 8.13 as referring to the beginning of the great tribulation period. And to another man of lawlessness that's going to come that we read about in 2 Thessalonians this morning. 
that's going to set himself up in the temple as God, that's going to align himself against the people of God and try to destroy them and even boast against Christ himself. And Jesus says that day is yet to come. That will be in the very last days. So the transgression that makes desolate, Daniel 8.13, parallels what Jesus is referring to as the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24. Which is why Gabriel says in verse 17 here, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So yes, it refers to the immediate centuries ahead. But then it looks through those events much further. It says these are all types of things to come. It's going to keep replaying. Many attempts have been made to understand the meaning of the 2300 evenings and mornings. People have calendars and charts for that kind of thing. Some wonder, okay, is it some sort of intertestamental period where the days of the Maccabees that are spoken of in First and Second Maccabees, which are books of the Apocrypha, which are non-scriptural books of history, where it talks about these days where Judah uh, Maccabees is going to rise up and revolt against Antiochus and against the Greeks. And they're actually going to win a series of, uh, of victories and then restore the temple worship. They're going to cleanse the temple and reestablish worship there in 167 B.C. So some wonder, is, is that what it's about? Others have wondered, um, is it some reference to the days of Jesus, you know, to his three and a half or so years of ministry on earth? where he's going to be crucified and buried and then raised. That's the sanctuary being put in its rightful place. Others have wondered, is is it part of the tribulation period, part of the great tribulation before Jesus comes back and puts everything in its rightful place? I think the answer is we don't know, which I think is part of God's point. I think what we're meant to see is that God knows exactly what he's doing and exactly when he's doing it. I think that's the takeaway. We don't need calendars because he has a calendar. We're on the trip with dad going, when are we going to get there? And he says, when we get there. Are we almost there? Maybe. But we're called upon to trust the one driving, to trust the one who knows the destination, who has it down to the very morning, to the very evening, Exactly 2300. And that's what I mean. Because it's amazing. Daniel's going to ask for an interpretation. And the angel's not going to give him, here's the exact day in history. When it starts, here's where it ends. He's just going to say, yeah, 2300 mornings and evenings. So we don't need our calendars because we know God has his calendar. We're just meant to enjoy the ride. To trust the driver. To know we will arrive at the perfect time. That's meant to comfort us. Father knows. Verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Which should be comforting to us when we read this kind of thing and go, I don't understand this. Well, Daniel didn't either. And so he prayed. Behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Eli. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened. And fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Like all the faithful saints of God, Daniel wanted to understand the meaning of these words. The meaning of the vision. And so he's going to pray for it. He's going to seek it. 
And someone having the appearance of a man, which I think is a reference to Gabriel, is going to stand before him. And then the voice of a man with authority to command angels is going to tell Gabriel to interpret the vision. And I think that's the Son of God answering the prayer of Daniel. What we know is as Gabriel approaches, Daniel falls on his face, terrified. Because angels aren't just chubby little boys with golden bows and little feather wings. They're frightening. They're terrifying. Even if they're there in the form of a man, Daniel has some sense uh, of the power. And Gabriel announces the vision is for the time of the end, meaning it's not just about things to come in the immediate future, but about things to come in the last days of the earth as we know it from the first coming of Jesus Christ to his second coming. It's about the days of the end. And then in these final words, he's going to pull it together. Verse 18, And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king of Greece. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king with bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise." Again, we know from history that when Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided among four of his generals, creating four dynasties that came in Greece. And from one of those dynasties is the the Seleucid Empire. And that's where Antiochus Epiphanes is going to be the last king of that empire. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, which I think is a reference to demonic power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. Again, a reference to the Son of God. And he shall be broken. But by no human hand, meaning... It will be by God's hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. I love that. He doesn't say here's exactly when they'll be. He just says they're true. It's true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And we see that this is not a rosy chapter at face value. We just see kingdoms coming and going, ruling over the promised land, ruling over God's people, exercising power in destroying them, killing them, even boasting against God himself. And the vision's about Medo-Persia, then Greece, then a tyrant king who rises up in the last days of the Greek empire. And then it's also about many days from now. Gabriel will say, through angels and demons, through kings and kingdoms, we see God Almighty guiding human history 
guiding everything that comes next, guiding who will have power and how they'll use it. And Daniel 8 is just there to to give a peek into that. If you're a, a Jew in exile in Babylon and you get these words of prophecy, if you're a Jew in exile in Persia, a Jew in exile in Greece, that you're meant to read or hear this spoken and be comforted by the fact, okay, your God is governing history. And even though there's, there's power being exchanged, and even though you're powerless in the hands of the powerful, there's a God that gives it when he pleases, uses it how he pleases, until a day when all false powers will be, will be broken. So why does he give us this? Why does he tell us all of this? Without giving all the exact details, why does he give us this amount of detail? And this is where I want us to spend the rest of our time. Just seven points of application. Seven things I think the Lord wants us to comprehend. Seven things I think he wants us to do when we read this kind of a passage. Number one, be humbled and pray. Daniel's going to model this for us all through the book of Daniel. He is a man of prayer. He is a man of humility. When it comes to the food chain of power in the universe, we sit at the very bottom. When approached by an angel, Daniel almost passes out. When he hears the interpretation of the vision, it says he was overcome and lay sick for some days. That's how weak we are. God speaks and we faint. God gives his word and we don't have strength. None can stand before the ram. We're meant to see that. Then none can stand before the goat. Then none can resist the little horn. And yet each and every one of them is easily and quickly broken by God as soon as he's done with them. To whom all power belongs. He just blows on them and they wither away. What it means is we should pray more and worry less. We should not worry because the God of all power cares for you, cares for us, his children. When Jesus says, don't fear man, all they can do is kill your body. I'll tell you who to fear, fear God, who has the power both to kill the body and after killing the body, throw both body and soul into hell. I tell you, fear him. That's power. Then he goes on to say, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them falls to the earth without the Father knowing. And yet you're much more valuable than many sparrows. So he says, do not fear, for you're more precious to God than many sparrows. So we're meant to not worry because the one who has all power is our Father. And he cares for us. Christ says to us, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's in your weakness that my power will be perfected. So we can boast gladly in our weaknesses, as Paul boasted gladly in his weaknesses, so that the power of Christ would rest upon us. So it wouldn't be our power, but his power. That humble prayer, in other words, really is our position of power. You want to take a position of power, hit your knees. You want to assume a position of power, Pray. Trust God. Number two, be in awe of God and worship. 
We're meant to just read and step back and just be in awe of God and worship. The vision spans empires and generations of dictator kings and centuries of time across the whole world. And yet the Lord is sovereign over every square inch, over every millisecond, over every act of every king, over every battle. He's sovereign. Isaiah 4, to behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. How big must God be? That when all the nations of all history are all added up together and put on a scale, it weighs to him less than nothing. I mean, he uses rams and goats as images of world empires. You wonder what Alexander the Great would think of that? You're just a horn on a goat. Or Medo-Persia, you're just a ram. He's having to take images from creation. They're not even that ferocious, just to try to capture their size compared to him. So you wonder, what, what's America? It's like a koala bear. You know, koala bear America. Or we all have, you know, national birds or the bald eagle. Maybe God goes, yeah, that's about right. The bald eagle. And every other nation beside us. He uses little created things to picture them. Which means the the most advanced aircraft carriers, they're they're like little toy boats in a bathtub to him. Even a nuclear blast, it's it's a match lighting compared to him. To us, huge. To us, terrifying. To us, overwhelming. To him, small. And again, that's meant to stir our awe for him, our worship for him. He will melt the universe with his words, according to 2 Peter. Number three, take comfort in the details of God's providence and power. The Lord has it all planned out. He certainly gives enough detail in Daniel 8 to connect the details to people and kingdoms in real history. In fact, the vision is so accurate concerning Medo-Persia and so accurate concerning Greece and so accurate with Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes that critics of the Bible, skeptics of the Bible, refuse to believe that Daniel wrote this. That's how accurate it is. They say there's no way this was written in the 6th century B.C. This had to have been 2nd century or later. Why? Because it's so accurate. Because we can look at the kingdoms that came after, Medo-Persia and Greece and everything that followed, and you see it's all there, right there in history, just the way God said it was going to happen. So skeptics of the Bible go, this can't be 6th century B.C. They cannot fathom a God who sees history at once, who sees everything that's coming, but not the way a magician looks through a crystal ball to the future. No, the way an author sees what's going to happen in chapter 22. And the reason he knows is because he's writing it. That's how God sees the future. That's why if we were to go to a book signing of a book that we read, we just love this novel, 
And in chapter 3 and 4, there was all these foreshadowings and predictions of things that were going to come in chapter 20. And we're amazed that everything that happens in chapter 20 is exactly the way the author said. We go to the author and go, man, how did you know back in chapter 4 what was going to happen in chapter 20? What's he going to say? What's she going to say? I was writing it. That's why I knew. It was all in my mind. I'm the one authoring it. That's how prophecy works. That's how God thinks about future. Not the way a magician looks into a crystal ball, the way an author writes a story. And so take comfort in the details of God's providence and power, and the author loves you. The, the story is written for you if you've turned from your sin and looked to Christ for salvation. If you've trusted on His sacrifice and worship Him as Lord, then you're written in the story as child of God, forgiven, beloved, protected until the last day. Fourthly, don't be intoxicated with worldly power, but learn to depend on God. Daniel 8 just cries out that all power belongs to God and he gives it to whomever he pleases for the seasons that he pleases according to his purposes. And then notice how Scripture speaks of the little horn. Verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. Which I again think refers to demonic power, that whatever power he possesses, he receives it from Satan. And even that is ordained by God. Verse 25, in his own mind he shall become great. Pretty much sums up humanity. In our own mind we're great. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. In his own mind Antiochus Epiphanes was great. That's why he named himself God Manifest. And yet he is broken. On the days of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Satan and Pilate and the Pharisees thought they were great. They mocked the Son of God on the cross. If you're really who you say, come on down from the cross. And on the last days, the Antichrist will think he's great, will boast in his greatness, and then broken, but not by human hand, by God's hand, easily brought down. If you see a picture of a gorilla holding a mouse in his hand, you're not thinking, oh no, what's the gorilla going to do? He's in danger. You just think all it takes is a squeeze. And we're meant to see God as this mighty God over all of history, over rulers who, who boast and are quickly broken. No human in the story does well with power. Every kingdom that comes to power is proud and short-lived and squashed out. Every human who boasts against God is a mere tool in the hands of the devil who serves a purpose and then goes to the grave. In other words, we can't really handle ruling the world. So whatever we think we would do with power, if only I had power, if only I was in charge, if only I ran the world, then it would be great. We're meant to see that's just not true. Our flesh is too corrupted. We're too susceptible. Instead, we should learn to depend on God. At no point is God comforting his people by saying, hey, don't worry, I'm going to give you the upper hand over your enemies. 
Don't worry, I'm going to give you a bigger army. I'm going to give you more power. No, the comfort is he is in control. He has the power, so we should learn to depend on him. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So here they are replaying the same story. God's people afflicted in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And their, their persecution had gotten to a point where they were thinking, okay, we're about to get killed. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says that was the point. God put us in situation after situation where we were burdened even to death. We were overwhelmed by the, and it was in order to make us not rely on ourselves, but to rely on God who raises the dead, God who will either protect us in this life or most importantly on that moment we die, he's going to receive us into glory and protect us there to raise us from the dead. That's power. Fifthly, don't seek earthly power, but gospel power. The gospel is, Paul says, the the power of God for salvation. The prince of princes, God the Son, took on human flesh, dwelt among us, crucified at the hands of sinful men in our place, all of it according to the definite plan of God, as a payment for our transgressions, as a rightful sacrifice for our sins to the Father. And yet, three days later, the grave couldn't hold him. The grave had no dominion over him. On the third day, he was raised, the Bible says, in power. And then ascended to God and is seated in power at the right hand of God. So can you think of a greater power than that? The power to actually satisfy the wrath of God. The power to, when you go to the grave, the grave goes, hands off. I can't hold you. The power to be raised. The power just to ascend into heaven and to take a seat at the right hand of God. That kind of power. Resurrection power. Glorification power. That's the power we want to seek. That's the power we want to pray for. They say, Lord, give me faith to trust in this Christ who has been raised. Give me faith to follow him. By your spirit, unite me to him in whom, in whom is all that power. So don't seek earthly power, but gospel power. Sixthly, don't preach earthly power, but gospel power. I think this really is a danger to the church in our day is we really start thinking that positions of power occupied by different people in various governments and places is what really makes the difference. When we get all worked up about rams and about goats, we get all worked up about horns when all of our passions, all of our obsessions, all of our energy, all of our worries and all of our anger is revolving around rams and goats and horns that are coming and going, we're actually saying something about the gospel when we do that. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul talks about how when he came to the Corinthians, 
He didn't come in with persuasive words of wisdom, with external impressiveness, with swagger. He says, no, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Doesn't mean we shouldn't care about world politics. Doesn't mean we shouldn't watch or listen or certainly pray. Just means we shouldn't worry. It means it shouldn't be what controls us. It means that our obsessions and our passions shouldn't be revolving around earthly powers. So the question for us is, what gospel do we preach? Not only with our words, but also with our emotions, with our passions. And do we preach the power of God that is in Jesus Christ? Do we preach resurrection power? Do we call people to hope in Him, trust in Him, take comfort in Him, worry about nothing else? Then finally, number seven, wait patiently and joyfully for Christ to assume his place of power and you beside him. Wait patiently and joyfully for Christ to assume his place of power and you beside him. Daniel 8 is ultimately looking to the very end of the present age, to events in the book of Revelation, where another Antichrist will rise up, demonically inspired to take his place in the temple, to boast against God, to persecute God's people. And then listen to how it will all conclude in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. So he came the first time on a donkey, this time on a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's how it's going to end. And Daniel 8 looks through the near circumstances that are very bleak to far circumstances that look very bleak but then pulls back the curtain and says, there's a God who's sovereign and mighty over all of it. There's a God who is using all these events and demons and angels and people and kings and kingdoms to even bring about the crucifixion of his son for your salvation. And then there's a God who's assigned a day when heaven will be opened again and faithful and true, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, will come and once and for all defeat all his enemies. And you beside him. I think that's who's on the white horses coming behind him. It's us. So are you willing to wait for that? Or do you want your power now? 
Daniel 8 screams for us to stop fighting and clawing and wrestling for fleeting power in the present age, for human power that passes away in order to look to Christ in faith, to receive power from God for salvation, to wait for that day when all power would be put under His Son and we with Him. I will say in whatever positions of power you occupy today, I don't think you ought to be ashamed of it. Whatever place of power God has given you, don't be embarrassed by it. You don't have to get rid of it. Just remember who it comes from. Remember what it's for. Remember who governs it all. Remember where all of history is is going. So we would trust in the power of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. And we'd hope in that day when he returns. Let me pray for us.